You guys ready for Thanksgiving? In there? Yeah, it's a sweet, sweet time. I think it's a sweet, sweet to reflect for sure, and all the all the spiritual things. But the, the food is really good too. So uh, I'm I'm excited about those those things for sure. All right. Well, as you guys know, as you can see on the screen, um, we started last week in a series that I've entitled "The Written Word." And it's just a focus on Scripture itself. We teach a lot from Scripture, obviously. That's the, the bread and butter of our ministry here at Timberlake. And it should be the ministry of any healthy church. Um, but we don't, often we don't sometimes dial in and talk about what Scripture is and what Scripture claims for itself. And that's really the goal of, of this series. And we saw last time that this is such an important topic because everything rises or falls on what we think about this book right? Everything rises or falls on, on what we do with, with Scripture, how we think about it, how we approach it. And uh, you probably remember, but just, just a refresher, we were created uh, to depend on God's words, right? We were created as humans. We were created to depend on His words and to obey His words. That's where maximal joy, flourishing, fruitfulness is going to come from. But in our, our pride, we were deceived in the garden. We went away from God's word, right? We began to doubt God's word through that satanic influence. And even today, that deception has persisted. And almost every second, somebody enters into a Christless eternity to be judged by God justly and righteously for their failure to trust God's words. So a lot's at stake here. But even as believers, we've had our eyes and ears open to the Scriptures, right? Uh, when you came to faith in Christ, you, the Lord opened your eyes to see and treasure His Word, to hear it, believe it. You see the truthfulness of it. But we saw that even as similar to, to how Satan was tempting Eve in the garden, Paul says that Satan's still crafty. He's still trying to tempt you and I today uh, away from pure devotion to Christ, pure devotion to His Word. So we've still got that, that satanic enemy, and we can fall back into deception. Our desires often come and go for the, for the Word of God. You wake up in the morning. Sometimes you feel like reading. Other times you don't feel like reading. Sometimes you feel like coming and hearing a sermon on Sunday. Sometimes you don't. Um, so our desires can ebb and flow, even as Christians, for the pure milk of the Word, as Peter says. So what do we need? What do we need? We need devotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and how do we get that devotion? Okay, the Holy Spirit. We need some, something deep. We need some deep convictions about God's Word. Right. We need deep convictions about the Word. We need, we need to know what this book is, really what it claims for itself. And that's not the only thing we do, right? But that's the, kind of the starting point. So I like to think of Sunday mornings, this time, as sort of a, a time for topics to parallel what's going on in the exposition in the, in the main service, to deepen your convictions around certain key topics, and this one is, is Scripture. And so when those, when those convictions deepen, when we start to understand really what God's Word says, we'll find ourselves responding um, like someone in Psalm 119 responds. Remember him? The psalmist from Psalm 119? We looked at that a little bit last, last time. What were some of the responses? That guy had, a deep, had deep convictions about the Scriptures. What were some of the ways he responded? What were some of the things going on in his soul? Do you remember any of them? 
He delighted in it, yep. What else? What's that? Yeah, he hid it in his heart, meaning he saw the preciousness of it. He saw that it was a light to his past, so he hid it in his heart, meaning he took it and, and, and brought it into his innermost being. It had influence uh, over his thinking, over his desires. Over, he brought it in, and he hid it in his heart. Yep. What else? When you, when you have, the, when you have these, this deep commitment to Scripture, what else happens? Convicted by it? Yep, you're convicted by the, the truth. You let it convict you. You don't buck underneath. You don't, you don't try to blame shift or get out of its convictions. You humble yourself, see God's mercy. Yeah. What else? Yeah, you want to proclaim it. Yeah, you want to see it, see it go forward, see other people come to know it. Um, remember, he said that he wept tears for people who didn't obey God's law. So again, if you go back, just kind of dog ear Psalm 119, maybe over Thanksgiving break, uh, read through that and make some notes on um, how this man responds who has deep convictions about his word. How does he look at the scriptures? Psalm 119. All right, if you remember where we were last week, where did we start? What was the first thing that, that we, or the first really attribute of scripture that we started with, the first claim? Inspiration, that's right, inspiration. So, how would you define inspiration? What, what's a key text? Let's put it that way. What's kind of one of the key texts for, for biblical inspiration? I'll give you a search for the number. Two. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. And what does it say there? All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's right. It's breathed out, meaning that it's a, it's a, it comes from God. God's its source, and it's a kind of He's framing it up like a creative act. It, the Scriptures... The written word, what we have as our Bible, comes from, comes from God himself. That's inspiration. It flows downstream. So we, we saw that that was um, inspiration of the Old Testament. Paul's talking about that in 2 Timothy. How, how do we know that the New Testament is also inspired? Okay, yep. So, so Christ's words carry that divine authority as Messiah. So he's coming as God himself, and his words carry authority. What else? What's that? Yeah, that's right. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to give them the Spirit, and they would bring to mind everything Jesus taught them. Anything else? Everything Jesus taught, and more of what Jesus hadn't taught them yet. So Jesus said, I have a lot to say to you, but I can't tell you now. Um, that's going to come later after I give you the Spirit. The Spirit's going to take my words and make them clear to you. So the point is that the apostles, this group, so Jesus carries authority, divine authority. He's in line with the Old Testament, but he's taking it further in fulfillment. His word carries authority, and then he gives his Spirit to those 12, plus Paul, the one he appointed, to carry his word forward and to remind, them, to remind them of what he taught, and then to teach them new things that he hadn't taught them yet. So then what happened? How, do, how else do we know that, that, that the New Testament is inspired? What did they do? They started writing things down, right? They wrote Gospels. They wrote letters. They wrote the book of Revelation. So these apostles who carried that authority, that delegated authority from Christ, began to write those things down. And then how do we know some hints that they, that they understood themselves as writing Scripture, inspired Scripture? How do we know that? 
What are some hints we see in the, in the documents themselves? That's right, yeah. So the apostles, Isaac said, held their own, viewed the writings of the apostles as on par with the Old Testament. So there's, we looked at a couple different sections where, you know, Peter would quote something, or Peter would quote the Old Testament, and then he would say, like Paul says, you know, and, and he compared Paul with the other scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. There's several examples that we, we looked at last time in that. What would, Paul have his, what would Paul say about his own letters? What did he tell the church to do with them? To read them out loud and, and circulate the letters and switch them with, with the other ones. So, okay, big deal about that. Well, the public reading of Scripture in the Old Testament, that's what you did with, with Scripture. Is you read it aloud to the people, and here's Paul saying, hey, circulate this around. So, if you missed it, I won't re-preach that message, even though I'm getting close to it right now. All right? Um, that's how we know the New Testament's inspired. There was a lot of data last week, but uh, trust that was helpful. We talked about the spectrum of inspiration. Remember that? How did inspiration happen? There's a spectrum. On the one end of that spectrum is like direct revelation. He's, he's revealing that to Isaiah or whoever. John says, write this down. Kind of verbatim. And then on the other side of that spectrum is the human personality is investigating. Like Luke, in Luke chapter 1, he's, he's looking at the different sources and he's bringing a... Uh, a gospel and the book of Luke and the book of Acts together as a sort of researched history. And that's equally inspired, um, as is sort of the direct revelation. So there's a spectrum there of inspiration, we said. And, um, and we saw that, man, if we... Well, you tell me, what were some of, the, some of the implications? Okay, if God's spoken to us in his word, what difference should that make in our lives? What are some of those implications? Do you remember any of them? Okay, yeah. So we don't need to expect anything. He, God wants to communicate to us through the written text of Scripture. Yeah. He went to that great, great pains to get it written down, inspire it and get it written down. So he wants to communicate with us around the written text. What else? This book is what? It's a mercy to us, right? Like we're rebellious creatures. They've been running from the Lord. And then he came to us, and he, this inspiration shows that God wants to relate to us. He desires to reveal himself to us uh, through his word. And that is an extreme mercy to rebels that are running from it. So the Bible's a mercy, and then it should just, that should be our greatest delight to know God through his, through his word. All right. Well, that was a little crash course for those of you who weren't here, and a little, little recap, all right? But I wanted to do that because that sets the stage, really, for where we're going today. And today we're looking at the topic uh, of what we, we would describe as inerrancy. Maybe. Maybe. Am I doing this right? There's a right clicker. I'm pointing at the right thing. Did you do that or did I do that? You did that. Okay. All right. Well, do we need a new battery or what? What happened here? All right, we got a lot of slides, so you're going to have to be on your A game. You ready? Okay. Oh, that was me. I literally opened this up and put it back on. And now it works. Wow. 
Miracles still do happen. All right, we're looking at inerrancy. Inerrancy. And um, so when I throw that out there, you probably can figure out what this means, right? Inerrancy means, when we're talking about Scripture, that Scripture is what? Without error. Right, without error. That's kind of literally what the word means. That's sort of stating it in the negative, right? Scripture doesn't have any bad things. It's not, not erroneous. There's no error in it. You could flip it around, which I think is, is better, which I'll explain here in a minute. I like inerrancy. That's important. We've got to keep the word. But I think it's better to state it in the positive. And stating, stating it in the positive would sound like this. The Bible is completely truthful, right? The Bible is completely truthful. That's what it claims for itself. Complete truthfulness. Now, while we're up here talking about terms, let me just give you another one that you might also hear. Sometimes you might hear the term infallible, right? How many of you have heard that? Or infallibility, right? That just means when something is infallible, it means it's unable to err or it's unable to, to, how do we say it? Unable to contain errors. It does not contain errors. Excuse me. Inerrancy says, okay, this doesn't have errors. Infallibility says it can't have errors. It's unable to have errors. And so for our purposes today, I'm just going to kind of camp on this one word, inerrancy. I think infallibility is, a, is kind of an implication off of inerrancy. But anyway, so why is this, why is this crucial as we're waiting in here? Why is this super important for us to look at? Well, if you think about it, if the Word of God contains errors... If the biblical authors were lying to us, or if they were misinformed, then the text is corrupt, right? Like, we can't trust it. We would be fools to stake our lives on a written text from thousands of years ago and say, this is the Word of God. How would we know what's true if, this, if the Bible wasn't inerrant or wasn't completely truthful? And Satan's original temptation was a temptation in this, this category. It's saying, hey, God's not trustworthy. His word can't be trusted. He implied that God's word was wrong, meaning that it contained errors. That God was trying to deceive them in some way. He wasn't really giving them what's best or what's true. And with Satan, his sinister lies continue today. And it used to be that the people tried to pick away at the Bible and find inconsistencies or, or contradictions. And many still do today. They try to kind of pick it out and be like, ah, see, it's contradictory. But today, what's more prevalent than even that, I would argue, is the, the particular satanic onslaught comes from the prevailing worldview of moral relativism. Right? Moral relativism. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Moral relativism. Relativism just basically says, simplified, that there's no fixed body of truth. There's no fixed standard. Instead, it's relative, meaning it depends on the individual or the community that that individual comes from. Truth's kind of determined by those groups. There's no fixed standard, right? And so morals are kind of like groupthink for particular ages of history or particular demographics. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing binding on all humans. So, you know, in the popular lingo of the day, you do you, right? 
you do you, or, you know, you leave me alone, kind of do it. Like, it's your truth, right? My truth, your truth. But as we're going to see today, humans aren't inerrant. Only God's word is inerrant. Only God's word is infallible. And, we're, and when the scriptures say it's inerrant, we're making a claim about its exclusive truthfulness. Okay? So let's look at this attribute a little more closely, and we're going to make just five statements this morning about inerrancy, and it'll kind of guide our thinking. All right, statement number one is inerrancy is rooted in God's character. Inerrancy is rooted in God's character. Meaning it's kind of an outflow. God's words and the truthfulness of his words come from the truthfulness of his character. So you could, you, you could see this in, through the scriptures. They, they claims, you know, again and again, that God is true. Christ is true. Meaning his, his character, there's, there's no deceit in him. He's, completely, he's the one true and living God in the Old Testament. God is true. Revelation 3, 7. This is of Christ. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, now look, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens in and no one sh- will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is kind of a preamble to what he's going to say to this church in Revelation 3. But he describes himself. He has this, this, he has John write this down. The words of the Holy One, the true one. This is Christ's description of himself. So God's true. Christ is true. That's his character. But then God is also ignorant of nothing. Right? He's ignorant of nothing. There's no one that can add value to God in terms of his thinking, uh, contingencies. He is all wise, the scriptures declare. He knows all things. And I love the way that, that Paul puts this at the end of Romans 11. Romans 11 says, it's kind of this exclamation here at the end of this, his theology of Romans 1 through, 1 through 11, he says, Oh, the depth, listen to this language, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. So it's deep, right? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And I love this. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Implication? Nobody. Uh, this, God's in a class by himself. He has a depth of riches and wisdom of knowledge that is unrivaled. No one can add value to God. And that means that he is, oh, where where did he go? We lost him. That God's ignorant of, he's ignorant of nothing. And in fact, if you go to Hebrews 4, we looked at that this morning in Pastor Brian when he quoted that about the, the word of God being living and active. God's word knows your heart. God knows your heart better than you do. So even we're tempted to think we're inerrant, that our assessments are inerrant, infallible. But actually God, Hebrews 4 says, God knows the, the intentions and thoughts of your hearts better than you do. So God's ignorant of nothing, and so when we bring all this together, it follows that since God's character is completely truthful, and since he lacks nothing, when those come together, it follows that when God speaks, his words are completely truthful. They're without error. 
He can't be misinformed, right? And he's never going to lead you astray. That's what it means to be true. That's his character. So inerrancy is rooted in our God's character, but that's not all. We see inerrancy, second statement. Inerrancy means that the Bible is completely truthful. When we say something is inerrant, it has the corollary, like we said at the beginning, that it's, it's a claim of truthfulness. And that's really the idea. So how does the Bible sort of flesh this out? How does it, how does it sort of argue as far as not just from God's character, but his, his words himself? How does, it, how does it argue that? Well, it gives us some, some categories here. These are really basic, but really helpful, I think, just to kind of nail down. God's words are true. That's a claim that the Bible makes for itself. God's words, and particularly his, the words that were written down, that he said, they are true words. God's words are true. Look at this statement in Isaiah 45, 19. <clears throat> Super simple, right? God's speaking through Isaiah the prophet, saying, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In contrast to the fickleness of humans, the falsehoods of idolatry, the Lord speaks the truth and he declares what is right. His words are, are true. If you want to add a few more on here, you could uh, write down Psalm 1830. Psalm 1830 is where it says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Something similar in Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. And then the classic in, in John 17, Jesus affirms this as well in John 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, meaning God's word, is truth. John 17, 17. So God's words clearly are true. That's, the scriptures claim that. This, this written text claims that. But then also, Jesus' words are true too. <clears throat> Jesus' words are true as well. Jesus said to, to uh, his followers, he said, I am the way where, I don't know how, do I not have it on here? Apparently not. Okay. He says, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. You heard that. I'm the way, the truth. There it is. Jesus claiming that he himself is the truth. The embodiment of God's truth. And so when he speaks, his words are true. I love 1 Peter 2.22. Here it says it in the negative. It says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's quoting, or alluding, at least alluding to Isaiah 53 there, and saying that Jesus, when he was on earth, there was nothing came out of his mouth that was deceptive, ever. There was no deceit in his mouth. And then finally, uh, Revelation 22.6. The end of the book of Revelation. He says, and he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Again and again, like that's, in that case, that's Revelation saying, the words that Jesus revealed truth to John, John had, he had John write it down, and in the end of the book, he affirms these are true. They're trustworthy and they're true. So Jesus' words are true as well. 
And then finally, the scriptures declare that the biblical authors wrote the truth. Again and again, you see these authors, these apostles, prophets, others, claiming that they are writing truth. Exclusive truth. Now, I'll give you a little warning here. I'm going to pile on the verses in this one. You thought the last one was bad. I'm going to pile them on, okay? I want you to feel it, okay? Don't worry about necessarily writing them all down. I just want you to feel the cumulative effect of what these authors are saying. I'll give you one Old Testament example. Ecclesiastes 12.10. Solomon, we think, wrote Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12.10. Oh, got that slide out of, out of order there. See if we got it. Oh, man, way out of order. There it is. We're back on track. Ecclesiastes 12.10 says, The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So the preacher in that case is Solomon, or we think it's Solomon. He's never identified in the, in the work. But he says he wrote the words of truth. So he's claiming, it's an Old Testament example, to be writing words of truth. All right, let's, let's pan over to the, the New Testament, give a smattering of the apostles, look at what John said. we got John, and we'll look at the kind of first and last of his works, John, or Gospel of John and, and Revelation. In his Gospel, here's what he wrote. He's talking about himself here. John 18.35, he says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. Third person. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. All right, what about Revelation? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Notice, write this down. <laughs> talking to John, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, so there's John. You've got Peter. 1 Peter 5, we're going to get here eventually in our exposition of 1 Peter. Probably the end of next semester, but we'll get there. He says, by Silvanus, he's talking, Silvanus was the, the guy who was kind of his, his amanuensis or the kind of his secretary who was writing down the letter on his behalf. So by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Meaning, I'm telling you about the gospel, the grace of God, and it's true, right? So stand firm in it. So we've got Solomon, John, Peter. Let's go to Paul. Okay, well, there's just so many we could talk about, but I'm just giving you the cumulative effect here. The Apostle Paul, look at Romans uh, 9.1 first. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Okay? My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to, to give his, his statement there, but he's, he's writing the, this letter to the Romans. Middle of the letter, he just pulls up, says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He's underscoring the fact that he is telling the truth. And this one's really interesting. 2 Corinthians 4.2 he describes it sort of as like the truth being in him. So he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. We could talk about the context later, but my point is what I'm trying to show you is Paul viewed himself as, as the truth of Christ being in him and coming out of him. And so when he writes, he's writing the truth. 
And again, we can multiply examples, but I think you get the point. Why did I drag you through all that? Well, because the overwhelming claim of all Scripture is that it is completely truthful. God is true and His words are true. Christ is the truth and He speaks the truth. And the apostles, the prophets, those who actually penned it, they claim to be writing the truth. So I want to lay that out as the foundation, okay? Because you might be thinking, well, what about this kind of concept of inerrancy? Can something contain truth and errors at, at times? Can it kind of be a mix? What about the supposed discrepancies in Scripture? Or the scientific errors that my unbelieving friends kind of point to and they say, ha, ah, look, gotcha. See, this is not inerrant. It's falsehood. Like, the Bible talks about four corners of the earth. Ah, like flat earth, you know, it's just... And they scoff and they mock. How should we think about that, right? If we're talking about inerrancy, how do we think about some of these these pieces? That's what I want to talk through next. And when it comes to this word inerrancy, we need to make a few qualifying statements as to what the Bible doesn't mean when it it claims to be truthful. Some people try to push this concept of inerrancy beyond what the Bible actually claims for itself. Okay? to an almost like scientific precision, like in every, in every context. Like a technical exactness, we might say. Um, so I'm going to say my third statement here. Inerrancy doesn't mean technical exactness, right, without respect to the context or the literary context or the genre. That's not what this term means. The Bible never claims to be like technically precise and exact in just the same context all over. Now, before you kind of burn me at the stake, hear me out, okay? Truth certainly requires precision, okay? We have to be precise. Truth, truth requires a measure of precision, for sure. All right, are you still writing? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to lose you. I'm going I'm to pause until you're done writing. All right? So I want you to track with me, because if you don't understand this, you'll be lost, okay? Truth requires a measure of precision. But, think through it with me. The amount of precision that we need isn't the same in every situation. What do I mean by that? Well, we might even say that sufficient precision varies according to the context, according to that situation. So let me give you an example. Pick this one up from John Frame. In a book he wrote, um, it's called The Doctrine of the Word of God. It is excellent, okay? If you're looking for a really, it's actually quite readable. Don't get overwhelmed by it. It's a thick book, but it's actually very readable. Doctrine of the Word of God, John Frame. He says, I'm modifying his example, but, you know, somebody comes up to you. They're like, hey, Jack, you know, how old are you? How would you answer them? What? Your exact age? Your year age. What if you said, um, well, I'm, I'm 20 years, 3 months, 11 days, 6 hours, 31 minutes, 42, 43, 44 seconds old, right? That's precise, right? There's a technical exactness with that. But don't do that. You want to have any friends, 
people will think you're so weird. Why? Because of the context, right? The situation. The situation is not acting for scientific. It's not asking for scientific precision. Somebody just wants to know your your year, like the like the amount of years you've gone around the, the around around the sun. You know, like okay, how old are you? That's the question. Now, would anyone accuse you of lying because you didn't give the precise answer down to the second? No, they wouldn't. Because you're not lying. Because the, the context is, okay, this is a round number. Context situation doesn't demand that level of precision. But what if you change the context, right? Change the issue. Now you're in a bio lab or you're in a chemistry lab or something. <laughs> now precision matters, right? Like you need to get down to the precise. Like if the context changes, a round number becomes an error. Does that make sense? So you can't just flatline the context when it comes to this idea of inerrancy. We have to understand that Scripture communicates in an ordinary style that's suited to everyday communication. In other words, it speaks like we speak. It speaks from our vantage point. Okay? It says things like, the sun rises. Does it rise? Well, no. From the standpoint of we're revolving around the earth. It's, it's, we, we move, we, we're the ones that are moving, not the, not the sun. But our vantage, it speaks from our vantage point. You don't think the Lord knew that when he set up the cosmos? <laughs> but he's condescending to us. He's talking like we talk. The Bible contains round numbers. It uses figures of speech to make its point. It even, it even uses hyperbole, which means exaggeration, to make its point sometimes. And a whole lot of other expressions of just everyday communication. That's, that's the context of Scripture. So we shouldn't force inerrancy to mean this sort of technical, scientific exactness without respect of the context. It's more accurate to, to simply say inerrancy is the Bible's ability to make good on its claims. Right? The Bible claims this and it can make good on it. It is completely truthful, completely trustworthy. That's the idea. Now, with that caveat in place, there's another kind of slight modification we need to, to talk about when we talk about this word inerrancy. And it's our fourth statement here. We can say inerrancy is claimed only for the original manuscripts. Inerrancy is claimed, when we talk about the Bible being inerrant, we're referring to the inerrancy of the original manuscripts, meaning the original documents when they were first penned, by the prophets, the apostles, and those in that circle. It's those documents that claim inerrancy, and it's not the thousands and thousands of copies that were made by others. Okay? Now, let me unpack this a little bit, too. And, um, again, not trying to undermine our confidence in Scripture. That's, I think, coming out of this, our confidence in Scripture will be um, will deepen. All right? So let me talk about this for a second. So when the Bible was first written, obviously just think this through with me. You got Paul, he's scribbling this out, you know, or probably somebody on behalf of him and not just scribbling. They were probably putting a lot of time and energy and effort into the formation of these letters because they knew they would they would carry on. They knew they were writing the covenant documents of this new covenant. And so they weren't just something like Luke Acts would have taken years to write. Okay? And a lot of money, probably, a lot of resources. 
So the point is that, okay, they're writing these things down. And when it comes to inspiration, God's not inspiring future copyists, right? He's inspiring the biblical author from last week. So he's writing this down, and what he puts pen to paper, quill to paper, is inerrant, meaning it contains no error. But then what ended up happening, and I'm glad it did, is that people began to take those documents and, like Paul, he's like he's circulating them. And what would happen when it would get to a new church? I mean, guess what? What would you do? You start making a copy, right? There's no photocopier. You got get to find the best handwriter and bring them in and make sure that this thing gets copied. So that happened at a rate. The copying happened at a rate that was unparalleled in literary history. So, like, for example, what I mean by that is you think, what's the, if you think about ancient literature, what's probably the most popular? What's the mo- first thing that comes to your mind as far as non-biblical ancient literature? The Odyssey or Oedipus Rex is actually the most popular, Oedipus Rex. So, I should have had a chart up here just to show you guys, but, like, Oedipus Rex copied, you know? You put the New Testament up next to that, and it's like, bam! It... Oedipus Rex is the second closest, and it just dwarfed in comparison to the number of times that the New Testament was copied. So my point there is it was copied just meticulously, yes, but then also just so much, so, so not just meticulous, but there was a volume of it. It was profusely copied. But in that process, some of those scribes, some of those people that were co- making those copies did make errors. So, give you some examples of what those would be. You got a whole room of people. Like, just imagine, I'm up here. I've got the I've got the book. You guys are all the copyists, and we're going for hours on end. And I'm just reading from. I'm reading this copy, and you guys are all copying it down. Guess what happens? You're on hour number eight, hour number nine. Your candles are burning low. You might doze off. You might you might write something in that you heard. There might be, a, a, the, the guy that was talking about it might have made a mistake in terms of how he read it, because there's a lot of human frailty here. And occasionally, issues happened in the copying. Now, the nice thing about this is there were so many copies, and that what ended up happening is there were families of copies. So, like, this person started copying it with this group, and then that group led to these people, and you can kind of see the sort of the family tree. It, like, kind of started here. You can kind of work backwards, because there are so many copies, and they're, date, they're dated, so you can kind of work backwards to see where the, where the errors happened, where the copy errors happened. And it resolves the majority of them. The majority of the errors are very clear, of kind of, like, where it came from. Just through that process, and that process is called textual criticism. It means they're trying to figure out Trace it back to figure out, okay, where did these things come from? And there are still, I don't, I don't mean to say that there aren't difficult textual variants. There are still today. They're very hard to kind of determine, and we're still discovering stuff, more ancient manuscripts, all those kinds of things. There are a few that are difficult, but none of those variants alter any major doctrine of Christianity. Um, like, meaning, it could go either way, and it still supports orthodox Christian doctrine. Like, there's nothing that's that's different about that. So, my point here is what I'm saying is, is you could summarize all this by saying this. Insofar as the copies reflect the original, right? 
as long as they reflect the original, they are equally the inerrant word of God to us today. And scholars for hundreds of years have been doing this work, and they have done it with excellence, right? So, might have raised questions for you. I'm happy to field some of those, uh, just because we don't often talk about this process, but it's important to know if we're standing on the word of God and we're saying it's inerrant, right? So with all that in place, let's, let's, let's wrap up here um, just with our, our fifth statement here. We'll just say, okay, inerrancy has some significant implications for our lives. So what are those implications? What are some of the implications of, of inerrancy that inerrancy has on our lives? Well, we talked about this first one as we started, but we could say it like this. The Bible upends this relativism that is so pervasive in our, in our culture. Or you could say it this way. The Bible challenges the claim of the modern man to, for, that his perspective and experience is inerrant. Right? We, every human believes they put their faith in something. Right? And in our day, you put your faith in you. And so that's an implicit claim to inerrancy. That's an implicit claim to say, I, the way I perceive these things are true. I might not know everything, but like I know this with certainty. From my experiences, from what my parents taught me, the way the world works, empirically I've observed these things, and this is, this is what I'm saying. And then you add that to the idea of, okay, well, that's, that's true for you, and maybe not for you, and so there's these sort of competing truth claims, but they get, they're supposed to live you know, relativistically together. The Bible upends all that. It essentially says, okay, you can't, you can't say that two different views are equally true, right? Like one is true, one is not. And so the Bible claims, it claims that there's one true and living God. And he has revealed himself through this word, through his son, Jesus Christ. And the way to restoration in life is only through repentance and faith in his son. There are no other ways to God. We're not all feeling the elephant from different vantage points. This, God has revealed himself to us. It's what this Bible claims. It's what we believe. And there's a clear morality in Scripture too. It's the image of God. It's, it's what he, God reflects. There's, there's good and evil. Things that are fixed. Things that aren't defined by how we feel or what we want or what we don't want. Okay? Gender is fixed. There are sexual ethics that are very clear in Scripture. Clear boundaries of right and wrong. And we could go on and on, but my point is there, this isn't up for debate if we believe the Bible. Because the Bible is the only inerrant word that we have that's going to help us. And that's because the Bible defines reality for us. The Bible defines what is real. In other words, it's, we can't rely on what we see. We can't rely on what we feel. We can't even rely on our experiences, ultimately. We have to take God's word 
first and submit to it if this truly is the inerrant word of God. This is the great test for every human. Because we don't do this. We, we want to be inerrant. But to believe Scripture means you submit all that to the, to the text of Scripture, to God as he's revealed himself through his word. And then finally, if all this is true, and it is, the Bible is completely trustworthy. Meaning you're not just kind of walking across a rickety old bridge that could fall in at any moment. And so we're saying, hey, stake your, stake your entire life, all your claims on this rickety old bridge that might break. It's like a bridge that's poured out of cement. Okay, and you can walk across it like a high, more like one of those interstate highways. You see those guys like you're building those highways, just the huge pillars and the rebar and all that stuff. It's not going anywhere. The Bible is completely trustworthy. There's nothing more sure. There's nothing more true. There's nothing more reliable than Scripture. And so the implication is we should trust it with our whole hearts, right? Our whole hearts. We have a sure word, a firm foundation, as the song says, or as the song says. So that's all I've got for this morning. Um, we'll wrap up here.